And welcome to Unheard Voices. I am your host, Sean Sullivan, and today I have an honored guest. I have the creator of Thinking Person's Guide to Autism. Sharon, can you give us a little bit about your background? How did you get to this point here? What, like, talk about, okay, I, before we begin, I have to mm -hmm. back up. So um, this is one of those rare opportunities where I'm actually really excited about my guest. Right. Cool. Because I had no idea that you existed until about a year ago. Really? And yeah. Okay. And I stumbled across it by accident and I have not looked away since because cool. you, ha your site brings a fresh perspective because there's a lot of those negative stereotypes around autism and there's a lot of yeah. things, there's misperceptions and stuff like that. And so I think what you're doing is frankly amazing and I, how did you come up with this idea of the thinking person's guide to autism? Well, first of all, only my dad calls me Sharon. My name is Shannon. Shannon. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, so I am the parent of three children who are uh, 24, 23, and 19. My middle child is autistic with intensive support needs. Um, and he was diagnosed when he was about, you know, we knew he needed support when he was about one and a half, but he was formally diagnosed at age three. And so I fell down a rabbit hole of really bad information, uh, which is was pretty rampant in the early aughts, uh, you know, the beginning of the internet and uh, Yahoo groups and uh, blogs and things like that. And so I fell for some pretty bad information. And if you've read the book, Neurotribes by Steve Silberman that covers a little bit of our journey, unfortunately, but I felt it was important to share it so that other people would learn from our mistakes instead of repeating them. Um, and the the main group that I was furious with after I learned that I'd been hornswoggled were the, the anti-vaxxers and the cure autism, autismas, um, you know, like TACA, uh, you know, uh, that was they've changed their name, but you know, talking about curing autism and other groups that I'm not gonna mention because I don't want to stress on them, and other groups that I should mention, like Defeat Autism Now, which has changed its name to MAPS, the you know, something the Association Medical Association of Pediatric Specialists or something, but they're still anti vaxxer cure autism people under a different name, so um, a, a more palatable name. Um, anyhow, so we started thinking Person's Guide to Autism in 2010 to combat the misinformation. Um, and just for context at the time, this was before the 2015 uh, measles outbreak at Disneyland, which was kind of the watershed event that swung the pendulum back into people realizing that, oh, we do need vaccines for public health reasons, and they actually do work. And maybe all this scariness about autism that the media is covering and saying that there are two sides when there never were is uh is dangerous and maybe we would rather have our children uh have a neurological condition that we don't understand but can certainly support than be dead you know so um Anyhow, so we started in 2010 to combat that misinformation and it was pretty brutal at first we got a lot of a lot of pushback. Um, and then uh, less than a year into it, uh, because it, just to be clear, I'm not autistic um, myself. 
And so most of the perspectives on Thinking Persons Guide or TPGA as we shorthand it uh, were parent perspectives. And then we we did have some autistic perspectives, but you know, they were by far the minority. And then, you know, rightfully we had autistic people reach out to us and say, you know, why are you talking about autism without fully including autistic people? Um, and at that point, uh, my our co-editors at that point it was me, uh, Jennifer Bide Myers, also a parent, Emily Willingham, who is our science editor, and Liz Dietz, who's uh, also a parent of an, a neurodivergent now adult. Um, we said, yeah, that's actually not very smart. And so we uh, brought in Carol Greenberg, who's still my co-editor. Uh, she is autistic and education consultant and the parent of another high support autistic person who's now a young adult. And so... So starting from that, we really started focusing not just on the science and the best information we could get to people so that they would know what to believe because there's so much competing misinformation out there, but also incorporating autistic perspectives so people would know from the inside out uh, why these things mattered, why it's so dangerous to talk about autism in such negative ways, because we are, as you know, personally talking about real people, not about theoretical people. And we're talking about people of all ages, not just children. And um, so, yeah, from from that's that's where we started. We really owe a lot to a lot of people who are current and former Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, ASAN um, uh, uh, staffers who really, really helped us figure out um, what kind of approaches we should take and what voices we should be listening to. Because, you know, um, in our earlier part, and you can stop me at any time, at our earlier part of um, incorporating autistic voices, we, you know, we kind of fell for that. Uh, what You know, the, the myth of the single story, which is something that one of our contributors, Emily Page Ballou, wrote about recently, which is that there's people think that, you know, if you found one autistic person, they can tell you everything there is about being autistic. And not oh, only is yeah. that not true, but because the autistic community is, is so enormous and contains so many different perspectives, not only of their specific disability profile or their race or their gender, uh, but, you know, when they were diagnosed, uh, what kind of supports they've been given, uh, what kind of co-occurring conditions they might have. And so, and, and just because of, you know, also wide range of personalities and experience, there are also people who are not reliable narrators in the autism community, in the autistic community. And so, uh, you know, sometimes we had to learn that the hard way. Um, and sometimes we backed the wrong horse, uh, but I think we've gotten to a point where we are more circumspect about, you know, not believing that something is true just because somebody, somebody autistic says it, you know, as with right. all our other information, we need, we need, we want citations. <laughs> I mean, not really, of course, you can't have that with personal experience, but we, we vet our people a lot more carefully. Um, you know, we don't put up with people treating other people badly. You know, it's, uh, we, you know, 
we really and we've really uh, kind of fine tuned our comment policy to where we just, you know, if people are misbehaving, we just don't have the tolerance for it that we used to. We actually even removed comments entirely on our website because. You know, yeah, just, you can't really it, predict, right? And that, who filters that? That requires a lot of bandwidth. Moderation is a pain in the ass. And also there's mm -hmm. so much automated spam now that it's, um, we found that the comment community on our website was decreasingly useful as a resource. So, yeah. I, so one of the things that, that that you mentioned that I that I do want to circle back on because it's mm -hmm. one of those things that's that that I've sort of picked on over the year picked up on over the years. Okay. Um, because what you said is very important, right? Like if you've met one person with autism, you've only met one person with autism. Mm -hmm. What is your views on this sort of tokenism that you see? Because it's one of those things like, you know, you everybody's like, "Oh, you have to watch Love on the Spectrum or you have to watch this or you have to watch that." And Part of me is like, that's not an accurate presentation or accurate portrayal of everybody on the spectrum. Like, you yeah. know that, right? Yeah, no, it's, um, it's such, it's hard because, you know, there was just on Twitter, I don't know if you saw, there were a lot of people talking about the fact that the TV series, The Good Doctor, was ending after seven seasons. And uh, most people were just like, oh, thank God, that is the worst and most harmful, you know, most stereotypical by non-autistic people, and it's just the worst. Um, and then a couple people would pipe up and say, well, what I actually kind of really identified with him. You know, it's similar to the the book and the now the play, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Like even as a parent, when I hate when I read that book when it first came out over a decade ago, I was like, I hate this book. It is so stereotypical. It is making this person seem like they don't have any agency. Um, they're so easily manipulated. But then I have I have dear friends who are like, oh, I realized I was autistic because I read that book, right? So um, I think even in the the worst presentations, there's usually something that can at least help one person but yeah i mean um i think it's great to live where we live now where there's so much more representation of autism in media that it's okay that we have bad ones because there are good ones too so you know like any representations is gonna suck you know if you have it's just the same way like there are enough autistic advocates out there that you know like some of them are assholes and that's just the law of averages right <laughs> You know, what are you going to do? Or there's a person right now that I'm not going to name that's just all over the internet talking about how, you know, wokeness is a disease and autistic people can't be racist because of their neurology. It's like, mm, no. <laughs> that's that's no. not how racism works. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> so, and, you know, um, so I, I, I'm okay with, I'm not going to promote bad autism representation. Like I still am going to dunk on the good doctor and I'm still going to dunk on, um, you know, shows like the big bang theory that specifically don't identify their very autistic protagonist as autistic, because if they did, then they couldn't make fun of them. Right. So, cause you can't make yeah. fun of autistic people. 
So um, I'm not going to stop dunking on those, but I love seeing things like, um, you know, like the series Claws, which has an autistic, uh, you know, secondary character. I don't know if you've seen it, but like, he is, he is observably autistic. He's not going to be passing anytime soon. And yet he has a relationship. He has, you know, he's an, an artist. He's an exotic dancer. He's got a lot going on besides just being some kind of stereotype. He's also black, which is shocking, um, you know, because there's been so little, rep- you know, so just even acknowledgement that autism expands beyond, um, you know, small white boys. So there's a lot of good, good representation going out there. There's increasingly more representation that is not just autistic, topically autistic, but is autistic informed, which um, the people who I work with who work in autistic media creation and in the theater are really an advocacy. They really, again, this is like secondhand for me because again, I'm not autistic, but they think the most important thing is for the material to be autistic, informed, and led. Because like in the case of Claus, Harold Perrineau, the actor who plays Dean, the autistic character, he's not autistic. Um, a lot of people will remember him from Lost as the dad with the, the kid with the dog, if you were around a decade ago. But um, So he's not. But his portrayal, I mean, it seems to me that he did all the work and that all the writers and all the staffers did all the work to make that a more authentic representation. So I think that's what matters is that we're not um, pandering to stereotypes about what non-autistic people think autism is and that we are presenting a genuine experience, one of the many genuine experiences so that people can understand. Because what we know is that uh, the power of stories is enormous and that media representations can really affect people in ways that they don't even understand. So the same way that when Rain Man came out, you know, in 19, the early 1980s, it completely changed the landscape for awareness, if not understanding of autism. It it just completely transformed that landscape. And so um, all these different representations are changing it in ways that are, I think, more subtle, but hopefully more pernicious and, and more beneficial to the autistic community in general. I really appreciate that. Cause like, it's one of those things, like as somebody on the spectrum, like I'm always looking for like that representation that is accurate. Mm-hmm. And like one of the things that I try to do all the time is just sort of advocate for uh, the realization that we're all different and we're all unique and we all have our mm-hmm. own sort of things going on. Now yeah. in terms of, of the stuff that's coming off from uh, thinking person's guide to autism, has there been any surprises over the last couple of years where you saw something come out and you're like, Oh, we have to address this because it just sort of came out of left field. Um, there's a, a lot of things. The, um, so one of the things that we have been working to combat the most recently has been, um, kind of the mother warrior swing from fighting vaccines uh, to fighting to segregate people with the highest support needs. So there's been a very dedicated campaign for both severe and profound, and I'm putting both in quotes, uh, autism by Mm -hmm. a, a wealthy, motivated, highly energetic group 
of parents who basically hate anything that autistic people say. Like, there's nothing too small that autistic people say that they can't oppose. It's just astounding. Um, that so doesn't make have, any sense to me. It doesn't make any sense to me either, but they have this idea that um, that autistic people with really high support needs and communication disabilities and cognitive disabilities um, are just not like other people, uh, which just goes to show how divorced they are from the reality of the autistic experience because I don't know a single autistic person who hasn't been rendered speechless and completely, um, you know, a normally speaking autistic person who hasn't been rendered to a, a puddle by environmental circumstances and overwhelm. And if you try Myself to interact with that person, it, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, but it's, you know, that's another example um, of, you know, if they become too overwhelmed. And so, uh, and just things like the incredibly high, uh, you know, content warning, suicidality rate among autistic people with and without intellectual disability, um, just the quality of life, the low unemployment rate, and not just for people who, you know, people think the, low, the unemployment rate is just for everybody. It's, no, it's, it's for people who are actively seeking work, right? And so it's not yeah. the entire autistic population. Like people are like, oh, well, your son, my son personally, like he doesn't work. I'm like, well, he's not included in those tests because he's not actively seeking application, you know, uh, employment. So um, the ignorance and just the fury, it's been really, uh, it's been really frustrating, mostly because they active, these groups that I'm not going to name, they actively spin misinformation. So they'll say things like autistic people claim that, autism is an identity and they're, they're not really disabled. And when we went back to talking about, you know, like you can find autistic assholes, you can find autistic outliers, you can find an autistic person who will say just about anything you want, but you know, they're an outlier. They're, they're not representative, but what these people will do is they will find quotes from autistic people saying the worst possible things and then cherry pick those to use those to support their, arguments when arguments. if you go and you look at the autistic self-advocacy networks website and their research positions when they just their what is autism position talks about autism as a disability and having all different kinds of support levels and all kinds of you know co-occurring conditions and so you know these some of these parents have been making these arguments and getting published in major newspapers for more than a decade and I guess the frustrating thing about it for me is that people don't question parents of intensively disabled people, right? Like normally you, anybody who said these things, even in an op-ed, you would think that somebody would check their statements to see whether or not they're legitimate. Um, but they've been repeating these same spins and outright mistruths for over a decade. And, and, you know, you know the mainstream media mainstream doesn't media ever, bother ever bother to check their statements their because, statements, you know, they just feel so sorry so for sorry these poor parents. parents. And as and a parent as of a high support disabled autistic person myself, I find this infuriating because everything they're doing is going to undermine not just the quality of my son and his peers' lives in the next few decades if they're successful, 
but it will turn back the clock like so many other clocks have been turned back on effective disability rights that have been so hard won over the past few decades. And it's uh, things like, you know, we're finally making some progress with home and community-based settings in terms of changing it so that people are, are will have more access to the community because we know that even if people aren't living independently, which again, this is the claim that, you know, autistic people want all autistic people to be able to live independently. Nobody is independent. Everybody is interdependent. They want autonomy. They want people to be able to make choices. And so, but you'll see these, you know, these screeds come out about how autistic people think that everybody, you know, everybody just needs AAC and independent housing to be able to live their good life. It's like, Pardon me, but it's just such bullshit. You know, I mean, you can you can look, but the thing is that you know, these are again they're very well off. You know, they have all the respite they need. You know, they get rest when they need it. They like again, I don't want to make all the. You know, I'm also a fairly well off person who. My son has a lot of respite, but like today, he, you know, his, his respite worker canceled, so he's hanging out with my, my husband. Um, I'm not saying it's not hard, because, you know, anybody who has intensive support needs needs a lot of support. That's just the reality of it. It's not his fault, though, which is, you know, I'm not blaming autism. It's just the luck of the draw. But um, they just make it seem like they live these lives of unrelenting misery and horror when they're the ones who are best positioned to make their children's lives the best they could be and then set the example and start programs that could help people who don't have their advantages, you know, and the fact that they're fighting against disabled people who so uh, burn out at such extraordinary rates, um, generally live in poverty or with support workers, really uh-huh. don't have their resources to fight this fight and that they're building the neurodiversity movement up, for example, as this big monolith monster that's barreling over these poor parents when it's the exact opposite, which is, uh, I wrote an article last year about how I feel like these parents are actually kind of like the, the MAGA movement um, of the autism and disability world because you know, you have these Magaists who are convinced, generally people who are pretty well off, you know, if we look at who it was that actually went, for instance, to the January 6th insurrection, mm-hmm. um, generally pretty well off middle class people, you know, not, yeah. but who are being convinced that they are disadvantaged well, the very in some line, way. They had to be able to afford a plane ticket. They had to be they able to afford able... a hotel room. They had to be yeah. able to afford all of this other luxuries. But time that off. People... Yeah, right. So 100%, I get what you're coming from. So this is really frustrating. So, you know, these people who have all the advantages are are being convinced that they're disadvantaged, whereas the people that they're fighting against are the truly disadvantaged who are fighting for better lives uh, for themselves and for their peers. So this, this is probably my major frustration. And I will say that in terms of your original question about it coming out of left field, uh, I kind of felt, I was kind of hoping that once people really understood that the autism vaccine connection, like not everybody, of course, there are still some diehards, but the, the mainstream media finally clocked that this was nonsense and that they were endangering lives. And I thought that we would go towards, you know, better recognition of autistic acceptance and understanding and worth. 
um, instead we have these, you know, these, these groups and they're, you know, small, but connected. And it's, it's incredibly frustrating to me as somebody who, you know, I don't have the resources. I don't have their energy. I just have my site, <laughs> me and Carol working hard. Right. So, you know, and, um, yeah, it's very frustrating to see, for me, to see people who should be on the side of right and rights um, try to undermine them because they don't like being told that, you know, they don't like being told what to do, essentially. So that's my main frustration. You know, just these are basically the same people who initially thought we should, you know, some of them fell for the autism um, vaccine connections but underlying it all has been the desire to cure autism. They just don't, they're just yeah, mad about I, having disabled and autistic children. And they I, thought they were guaranteed I, good lives. And, and like, are we going to get life. to the point at some level where we actually look at the research and we look at the funding and we're going towards making lives better as opposed to a cure? Like, do you think yeah. we'll ever get there? Um, based on the percentages of where research is being directed, according to the interagency autism coordinating committee, not anytime soon, <laughs> but I, okay, so let's, let's talk about, well, let's talk about things that give me hope. They okay. did change the makeup of the interagency autism coordinating committee for the last seating. It is, has so many more autistic people than it ever has. It includes, uh, you know, Ivanova Smith, who has intellectual disability. It includes I love Hari her. She's one yeah. of my favorite human beings <laughs> on the entire planet. But yeah, can, before you go too far, sure. can we back Pardon? up? Before sure. we go too far down this, can we back up? Sure. And can you kind of explain what that committee is? Because a lot sure. of people aren't going to even know. Okay, yeah. Sorry, I'm in the weeds. The, um, no, inter you're good. <laughs> the Interagency Autism Coordinating Committee is a, a special council that's part of the NIH, the National Institute of Health. They were created as part of the, oh, was it, it's now the Autism Cares Act, but before I think it was the Combating Autism Act. It was um, to kind of oversee autism policy and advise. I mean, they don't actually have a fun, like a legislative or official policy Im implementation role, but they do advise. They have uh, meetings several times a year to talk about specific subjects. They, um, you know, they have most of the people on uh, the committee uh, are you know, scientists and researchers who work in autism. But they have a com um, community members who are from, some of them are parents, um, some of them are, you know, researchers, and then now some of them are autistic people, like uh, like Jenny Mae Pham, who uh, is an um, amazing autism researcher uh, representing the Vietnamese autism, autism community for the first time, and she's also a parent. So, I mean, just seeing in uh, Morinike, Onaiwu, who's uh, a Nigerian-American and autistic herself, also a parent of autistic kids. I mean, this is the kind of representation that was really lacking before. Um, and so, I mean, before they would have, I think they had, you know, Ari Neyman and Scott Robertson and maybe John Elder Robeson and, you know, I mean, which is useful. I mean, especially like, Ari is a powerhouse to be sure. And John Robeson is not gonna let anybody's uh, BS slide on his radar, but 
um, you know, we needed more. Mm-hmm. And now we have it. And I hope that is a precedent rather than a one-time deal. And one of the things that I hear all the time from from folks on the spectrum, and, and I want to kind of circle back to something you said a little earlier, was about this unemployment rate. Because mm-hmm. the numbers that I see out there from the CDC that, that was launched this last year was that if you have a degree mm-hmm. and you're on the spectrum, that right now your unemployment rate's like at 85%. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest barriers that I find more often than not is this entire interview structure, because oh, yeah. the interview structure is built to make it so our brains can't respond to the questions like the questions yeah. in itself are just horrible. The social dynamics of an interview when it's entirely based on social norms and eye contact and all of that other stuff. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of any sort of successful programs or plans or anything <laughs> That would help yeah, there with are, that kind of thing. There, are, there are, sure, there are several actually. Um, I just wish they they were implemented more. Uh, probably, the one that I would cite first is uh, John Marble. He's an autistic advocate who's here in San Francisco. His company is called Pivot Diversity, and that's what he does. He helps companies figure out how to be neurodiversity inclusive. Um, so his company is great. Microsoft actually came up with a program. Uh, you know, it's engineering specific. And as we know, like not all autistic people are STEM people, but it was autistic, you know, that was very specifically circumventing the traditional interview process. Um, so, and there are, there's specialist Stern, you know, there's a bunch of programs out there that are working on this. Um, I don't think enough companies take this seriously. Um I know a lot of people are really bummed uh, at the way things have evolved since the pandemic because so many people found that working at home was ideal for them and then have been forced to return back to the office, uh, which has been detrimental for a lot of people. Um, A lot of people, uh, you know, again, I'm always going to go back to the research. The research shows that not just autistic people, but a lot of of workers do better when they can complete their goals on their own time, on their own schedule. And so, you know, as long as tasks are project-based rather than, you know, having to be working from eight to five, usually that's actually more productive and better for quality of life. So it works for the company, it works for the worker. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's similar to what we know about the research showing that Schools would do better if they let kids come to school later and do less homework. But, you know, they just can't do that. So, um, and there's actually, uh, you know, and it could actually work out better for everybody because if we made work, because again, most of those kids have to go to school early so their parents can get to work. But if we made work routines more flexible, then we can make schools more flexible. And then again, everybody would win. But that's not where we're at right now. And another thing that I get from time to time, and and that's one of my my gaps in information, right, is so if you have a parent, right, who's just starting this pathway towards learning that their child is neurodiverse, Mm -hmm. and they have a child that's Mm non-speaking, what's a good place to start? Like, not in terms of like assessment, but in terms of like helping their child communicate. Uh, you know, I really appreciate, I'm going to list three 
resources here. So the first thing is like, if you have a child who's having difficulty communicating, then you need to work first and foremost on getting a functional communication system. And this can look different for different kids, but um, the um, company Assistiveware, which is out of, out of Amsterdam and just for disclosure, I do work with them sometimes and they do actually uh, fund TPJ a little bit through a roundabout thing, but you know, um, no, I should be clear about that. So they uh, were involved in producing a documentary about Jordan Zimmerman, a non-speaking, um, amazing non-speaking advocate. We were part of the team behind that. And so we get a tiny little bit of the profits and that helps us pay our writers. So I want to be very clear. I don't want anything to be not I appreciate clear. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah I don't yeah, want anything. But anyhow, but I mean, I've just always loved Assistiveware. They're, they developed the app called Prolico to Go. Um, I'm not promoting them because of, of the funding. Uh, and so they have just tons and tons of free videos and resources on their site for parents who are just starting out to figure out because they have more than one AAC app. They have Proloquo to go. They have a new, entirely new one called Proloquo. Um, and these are all ways to help kids figure out how to communicate without having to produce speech. Um, there are other ways as well. And so the second org I'm going to cite is uh, Communication First, which is an organization in Washington, D.C. that supports you know, non-speakers or communication um, people with communication disabilities uh, of all disabilities, not just autism. And um, so they have really good resources on a lot of different ways of learning to communicate. Um, and then the third one is I just think that everybody should get a um, copy of Tiffany Hammond's book, A Day Without Words, which is a picture book about a young autistic child who is, and his mom as they go through his day with him using AAC. It's a, it's a absolutely gorgeous picture book. And then Tiffany Hammond herself, um, she's autistic and her two children are autistic and her um, site on, uh, and Substack is called Fidgets and Fries. Um, although she recently said that she's not going to be writing about her son's experience as much, it's his to tell, but, but as an autistic as person an autistic herself, herself she, and a parent, she still has plenty to say. So those are the three resources I would recommend. Uh, Assistiveware, Communication First, and then Tiffany Hammond at Fidgets and Fries. Thank you so much. Mm, sure. And then, of course, come to us. We can, you know, you can always come to our Facebook page or email us um, or you know, text us or, or uh, on Twitter, yes. well, whatever, it used to be Twitter or Facebook and uh, let us know what your, uh, people's questions are. We do a lot of community queries and if they're no, intensive I, enough, we'll actually do an article. And I also saw on your website that you have autism organizations that you recommend and autism <laughs> organizations that you don't recommend. Yep. We I do. don't want to go out and call Ooh. out the ones that you don't recommend because I don't want any you to receive any feedback because of this. However, how do you approach organizations that you do or don't recommend? Is there like a criteria involved? Yeah, no, that's that's what the article is about. The article lists the criteria to use. Um, and basically, if if they're not autistic informed, autistic led, 
Um, you know, the irony being that I, I know that I myself am not autistic, um, but, um, you know, the majority of our authors are autistic and I consider mm -hmm. myself to be, a, a, you know, a mouthpiece, not the authority, you know, I'm communicating information. Um, so yeah, so they need to be autistic informed and if they, you know, just look and see if they oppose autistic advocacy, like specifically if they dislike the neurodiversity movement, which is just, it's just the silliest thing. Um, you know, if they want to cure autism, if they are hawking supplements for autism, if they talk about special diets for autism, if they talk about um, ABA therapy as being crucial, being necessary, because for those who aren't familiar with applied behavioral analysis, the goal is to condition autistic behaviors out of your child rather than teach your child to thrive. And I'm sure any ABA therapist listening to this will probably feel aggrieved. And I am sorry, but you are participating in a system that is harmful to autistic people, no matter what you've been taught. But there are ways to work from within the system. So, you know, learn from autistic people about ways to do that and stay strong and look at your autistic clients first and consider their well-being first is what I would say about that. So, um, so those are the kinds of things that I look out for. Uh, and just also, you have to be careful about organizations that are led by autistic people who uh, like to differentiate themselves from people like my son. So uh, we have an article on this on our site by Fergus Murray, a wonderful autistic advocate from Scotland. Uh, talking about what they describe as ASPE supremacists. So they are people who don't want to be supported, uh, don't want to be associated with people with higher support needs or intellectual disability. Um, they dislike being termed disabled. And, uh, and the thing is that, I mean, I have a lot of empathy for people in this situation, given that the DSM has changed so much, especially I'm in my 50s, so for people my age who didn't even have access to an autism diagnosis growing up and were just treated badly their entire lives, and I'm sure you know nothing about that, Sean. So, uh, <laughs> so um, story of my life. Yeah, yeah. But there's some people who were told and whose self worth is dependent upon not being disabled because they are smart and special. And that's what makes them have value and worth. So I can see why this is really hard for people. But the solution for that is not to align with other people who think the same way, but to connect with the wider autism community so you can realize that the things that are hard for you are okay and they are not uncommon at all. And just because, you know, I, I just like, I always have such a, my heart just breaks every time I talk to like a young autistic person who has never had any connection to the autistic community. I'm like, oh my God, oh, your people oh, are waiting man. for you, but not the mm -hmm. Aussie supremacists. <laughs> you know, just, 100%. Just watch out for these people. But you know, you are full and worthy and you don't have to be a performing feel in order to have worth. You are enough just as you are, you know, you and the things that are hard for you, it's okay for those to be hard. You need support, not criticism. You need understanding, not, you know, condemnation. And you need to connect with the people who understand what you're going through because it sounds like there's nobody in your life who actually really gets that. 
And and I would like to expand on that for just a second, if you would allow me to, because like that is the part that changed my life forever was that first support group that I went to and I met other folks on the, on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget that first time I experienced like, Oh wait, I'm not the only one who thinks that way (laughs) or, Oh wait. Like, you mean there are other people who think that? Like, mm-hmm. the, the life-changing aspect of meeting other people on the spectrum and being able to communicate, right? It's why I run two support groups now. Ooh. It's because, like, that is the, for me, the, the most important aspect is getting to other people's in your community. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right. That doesn't mean you assimilate with other people that are just like you and have your same no. works on the spectrum. You have to go out there and meet folks like Ivanova Smith, right? Mm-hmm. You have to go out there and you have to talk to these people and like get an idea of what they're going through because even though they may have more support needs or they may have higher levels of needs, at a fundamental level, we're all experiencing the same thing. It's just to mm-hmm. a different varying degree. Yeah. Right? We all have sensory issues. Mm-hmm. That's just one of those key components. Yeah. But some people experience sensory issues way more egregious than others and Mm -hmm. that's okay too so i'm so glad you said that because like that's where i recommend everybody like get out there and meet people in your community it Mm -hmm. makes so much difference like yeah ah so my heart goes out when you say you meet people that have not experienced that yet because you're absolutely right like and then another thing that I really wanted to touch on before we get out here is, is your mission, because I think it's amazing. Oh, like, okay. yeah. So like, because you're right, like society has this picture that they've painted of folks who are on the spectrum. And so an organization like yours that takes a step back and, and actually thinks about things before they put it out there, <laughs> like I, that to me is just so refreshing. Right. Well, so, like, again, we're highly, highly informed by autistic advocacy that um, comes from organizations like the Autistic Self Advocacy Network and um, our writers like Max Sparrow and Emily Page Ballou and Anne Borden. You know, um, we just can't do what we do without having these different perspectives. Um, You know, we're working on a piece right now about how, you know, for some people who uh, just still resent the terms, you know, high support needs and low support needs, because like we talked about initially, you know, just because you technically have low support needs, most of your day doesn't mean you can't crater and and have the highest support needs possible when you're in a low spot so um and that's valid you know we have to talk about these things um and we do actually have another good uh article that we shared on facebook and and social media lately called by ann memot who's a english writer that we really enjoy called levels of autism that talks about what nonsense it is and how everything is dependent on environment and, and your health and the people around you and, and, you know, just what so kind of energy you have with that this day. concept of levels. Do you know? Uh, I mean, it's part of the DSM criteria. 
for autism. Because, like, I, I don't remember or recall levels being a part of the conversation up until well, they, fairly they recently. they weren't before because before we had, I mean, there were levels kind of in the DSM-4, which is the previous version, but then there was Asperger's. And since um, Asperger's got folded into the complete diagnosis of autism in 2015, 13, I think, mm-hmm. Um, since then, you know, autism includes people who are formally diagnosed with Asperger's. And so they, um, people tend to, who don't understand the complexity or need a criteria or have to fill in checkboxes, use the term high functioning. Um, and so people have said that, well, that's not really very useful. How about low support needs instead? But, you know, again, that doesn't always make sense. Um, everybody really needs... You know, well, as our societal understanding of autism increases, more people will understand that just because somebody can do something at one hour on a certain day doesn't mean that's what they're always going to be able to do. Um, you know, I mean, certain people will maybe be able to function and work, but then when they get home, will be completely useless and need to hide under the desk for three hours until, or, you know, or the rest of the day. So, um, you know, we just really need to work a lot harder as a society to understand just how complex autism is and that it's not this monolithic entity, even within a single person. It's constantly fluctuating, and uh, that's the nature of being autistic, not even, you know, just, like you said, having the sensory issues of communication issues or the, the you know, the diagnostic criteria about reliance on routine and things like that. It's It's just about the dynamism of being autistic. And I think that's probably the most important thing to get across to people. I appreciate that. (laughs) And something else that's happening a lot in Oregon, um, that will probably knock your socks off. We Mm. have evaluators who actually still think that you cannot have a co-diagnosis of autism and ADHD. Wow. Wow. Okay. So can you, (laughs) right? And I just wanted somebody else's perspective because I'm sitting up here going like the same kind of thing, right? So like, is that something you guys are hearing in California as well? Or have you heard of that before? Um, I have not heard that it through any formal or informal channels. That's really funny. Uh, obviously not all autistic people have ADHD, but oh yeah, it's, it's, it's a co-occurring condition to be real. And actually what is more likely to happen than not is that autistic people will be diagnosed with ADHD and not get their autism diagnosis. So that's more likely to happen when they actually What are the ramifications of that? Like, like... Because, like, for me, like, if I were to have been going through that whole thing and then get my diagnosis and they would have told Mm -hmm. me I had ADHD and not autism, like, I would, I don't know how I would react. Like, like, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. But but I see this happening way more with women than with men. Um, And it's one of those things where I'm just like, I don't understand. I don't understand. Well, again, we are so, um, we're still so behind in just our diagnostic criteria being inclusive of everybody who qualifies as being autistic. So that's the problem. I mean, it's gotten better, but it's, you know, still not anywhere near where it needs to be. 
And so that's why we'll continue to have people self-identifying because um, at least you can get community supports that way, even if you can't get official supports. But the thing about you know, having ADHD is nobody's going to give you sensory accommodations for an ADHD diagnosis, right? So, right, a hundred percent. Right, so that's not really helpful. Nobody's going to give you. Nobody's going to cut you any slack for having a meltdown because, you know, you have ADHD. That's just supposed to mean that you're hyper all the time and you can't focus. So, like, why are you, you know, in the corner not able to talk? So, Right. And, it, and the reality <laughs> is, is it's a sensory processing thing and it's not mm-hmm. anything else. Like, there are mm-hmm. times where, like, sensory issues are just, you know, like... I like I was talking to a gentleman by the name of of Matt Sloan for my first mm-hmm. podcast and one okay. of the things that he talked to me about though I totally had no idea was about when you're in a grocery store and they have those fluorescent lighting mm-hmm. uh, the fluorescent lighting actually causes your pupils to expand and retract and oh. so if they use specific kinds of fluorescent lighting that's why you can get into sensory overload because okay. your eyes are working hard enough as it is but mm-hmm. then you're like, why am I tired like halfway through a grocery mm-hmm. shop? Well, now I understand yeah. because we have this huge prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. And because I have this prefrontal cortex and my eyes are working, it just shuts down other parts of my mm-hmm. brain. Yeah. 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 So the, the thing is also like if a lot of autistic people I know can be sarcastic as hell, but don't necessarily clock sarcasm when it's directed at them. And those kind of social snafus are another thing that you're not going to get, you know, any slack for with an ADHD diagnosis. So just there's so many things. Oh, 100%. It's just really, yeah, it's not useful. And then the other thing that, that I saw on your on your site recently was about the autistic care workers. Because it's one of mm-hmm. those things that I want to touch base on. Because, like, for me, like, the direct support workers or DSPs, as they call them in Oregon, they are superheroes. Oh, yeah. And they don't get paid enough. No, uh, they don't get their credit and the respect that they deserve. No. Like, will there? Do you see a a time or, or a situation where that would actually change? Where they would like? Because I know that's like what's needed. Because like, if you're talking about stability and you're talking mm-hmm. about routine, 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 but yet you're changing direct support workers every two months because they yeah. can't afford to do that work, it seems like it's a cycle that's doomed for failure. Yeah, well, I mean, that was, they were trying to include increased pay for workers, and I forget what, you know, I'm so sorry, I'm not a policy wonk. Um, No worries. Federal bill it was, but that was actually supposed to be part of a federal bill, and it got carved out as concessions to the Republicans. Um, Sorry, I'm just going to be openly partisan here. Um, Please. (laughs) You're fine. (laughs) You know, because the, the, the Republicans are not on the side of disabled people. I'm sorry, they're just not. Um, so everybody knows that we need more pay, that they deserve more pay and, um, people are working on it. You know, the autistic self-advocacy network has always been behind it. All the other disability organizations have always been behind it. Like, uh, the disability rights and education defense fund, DREDF in Oakland, Berkeley, um, but it's just, it's like, people don't give a shit. Sorry. It's like, if you're not part of the disability community, it's not your problem. Even though, as we know, most everybody is statistically likely to become disabled at some point in their life if they live long enough. Right. So it's, it's actually your problem too. You just don't think about it. So, um, 
you know, I wish it was better. And the, uh, just since you brought up that the subject was autistic care workers, I think it's really interesting to see like how many autistic and disabled people actually do opt to become care workers because they don't want people to go through the same experiences that they did. They want somebody, you know, who actually knows what they're doing to have their back. Um, and then going back to those, those awful, you know, profound autism people, they always say things like, well, you know, I would like to see you try and take care of my child for a day. And it's just so funny. It's like, do you know how many autistic people do that voluntarily? Like, because they have awful people like you, like they're trying to actually do, inter, you know, interference so that your children's life isn't so horrible. But, you know, you go ahead and, and say whatever you want to say, even because you refuse to actually listen to people who know what they're talking about and have lived experience. So, sorry, that's just... And you get one or the other, right? You get those parents that are amazing, that do all, everything in their power to get their children out of the house, to get them the supports they need. And then you have the other parents that sort of talk like their child is just a burden. Like yeah. everything is this negative, that negative, this negative, this negative. And it's like, at, it, if that's the conversation you're modeling for your child, like I that's know. kind of mean. Like, Yeah, well, I'm... Ah. I'm yeah, no, it's horrible. But what I'm I'm more worried about the, the parents in the middle who are looking for information and who find these negative, these fonts of negativity as their role models. Because again, the parents, like we talked about with the autistic community, the parents are looking for community too. I mean, that was part of my problem initially when I fell down for, for the wrong information. It's because I was flailing and I was looking for any kind of supports because, you know, the thing about autism is that there's no consistent support, there's no consistent path uh, for parents. No. And so uh, it can be very, very easy to fall for the wrong information. And if people support you, like these communities can be very, very supportive. And, you know, people tend to, you know, if they have, they feel disadvantaged because they are disadvantaged. You know, the system mm -hmm. literally is working against us all. So um, if you find people, you find solidarity with the wrong people, that's really dangerous for you and your kids. And that's why I try to speak out as much as I can. But, you know. There was a, an article that was, uh, I think it's about a year, maybe a year and a half old, um, that was called uh, How the, the World Was Not Built for Us. Mm -hmm. And it was from a, a woman's perspective uh, who brought her autistic child to a, a, an event. Mm -hmm. um, and how the event was labeled as a, a, a certain thing. But then when you get there, you realize all the activities are not good or conducive for neurodiversity and like the way mm -hmm. the entire thing is structured. Yeah. Um, why is it important for people to understand that if you're organizing an activity for people or supporting people on the spectrum to make sure that their event is accessible for people on the spectrum? Because you want is you want people who don't usually get to go out to be able to go out. I mean, most like you said, most places aren't built for us. But the thing is, you know, people seem to view accessibility as a once and done thing when it's actually a process. And part of that is because of the prevalence of what are called competing access needs. Um, like for instance, in my very own house, I have two people who are highly sensitive to noise, and then one person who makes a lot of noise. Right. And so if you had those, all those people together at an event, it wouldn't work. So, I mean, you can, 
there's really truly no way to make something 100% accessible, but you can work with the communities that you're trying to support to make it as accessible as possible. And you can do things like making sure people have noise canceling headphones if that works for them. You know, there just needs to be there needs to be an understanding that it's a process and that it might not work well the first time. Um, but, you know, too many people descend and like they think they're these guardian angels and they're like, look, I gave you this thing. It's accessible. It's like, you didn't talk to me about it. You know, you didn't talk to anybody else about it from the community. Like, I'm glad you read that article about like, you know, dimming the lights, but that's not going to work for everybody. So you have to, you have to be informed by the community that you think you're serving, you know, and good intentions are insufficient with the in, uh, accessibility. Another thing that, that comes up from time to time in terms of job accommodations that surprises me is the conversation is always like literally like, when is this going to end? Mm-hmm. Like the idea that accommodations for people on the spectrum is going to be temporary versus yeah. like, no, this is not a, a two week thing. Like I know. there's this misconception out there. Like it's all going to go away overnight. Like, how do you combat that? I wish I had a good answer for you. I, I just wish I people know, would, right? would take accommodations seriously. And again, as a process, um, it's really affecting the mental and physical and economic health of uh, autistic people not to be accommodated. And the thing is that's so frustrating is like, you know, autistic workers, like as a, as a block are like, so productive and so dedicated and like they're the best workers but you have to set them up to succeed and if you don't do that then they're going to burn out and that's on you because you didn't make the effort to make sure that they had the right environment you know like if you could oh okay you know i've had uh i've i've had a very diverse employment history because my autism gets in the way Mm -hmm. but i've been at the same job now for six years and i'm respected i have the support needs that i need and i'm actually successful so it's it's a huge difference like i'm glad to hear that like the the one thing i wish for everybody is that they could be authentically autistic at work yeah that would be like a amazing goal to achieve if we could ever get yep. there yeah and the thing is like that could even be just like working at home mm-hmm. you know? and mm-hmm. just communicating via email so you know we saw that this works the pandemic proved it so and then the, the other question that that i would like to ask if you would so like with your with your children and and sort of like on their path, right? Mm-hmm. Can you kind of talk about what role the an occupational therapist played in that? Because the one thing I hear over in time and time again is you need to get an occupational therapist. You need to get an occupational therapist. And I'm like, great. But what do you do once you get an occupation? What am I supposed to be looking for? What's the conversation okay. that I'm supposed to be having? An occupational therapist or a physical therapist. And I would say that this is important because, um, well, first of all, a lot of autistic uh, people and their siblings, um, they have a, uh, are, have a tendency to have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or hypermobility syndrome, which is where your, your joints are just kind of all fucked up and you're, you can have, there's a lot of variation 
but the, the joint thing is is crucial. And so I wish that was part of the autism screening because we have so many people who get, especially it, it can become worse in puberty. And we have so many people who hit puberty and then their bodies really get messed up and nobody believes that there's anything wrong with them. You know, PE coaches will torture them. Um, and so it's, it's more common in women and people who are assigned female at birth, but, um, you know, people need to get screened for that. But just in general, autistic people tend to have motor issues and uh, specific area weaknesses. And so um, a lot of the kind of things that uh, just like exercises and just things like even as young kids that kids are expected to go do like going to trampoline parks if they have if they don't have mobility issues or or hiking and stuff like that. Um, if you have specific weaknesses or hypermobility, these things can actually mess up your body. And, you know, it's better to know what's going on. And if you have motor issues like with things like writing, then um, it's better to, you know, teach people to either type or use, uh, you know, a, a spelling system that doesn't require them to hold a stylus and get them Velcro shoes and slip on shoes instead of turning the, teaching them to tie their shoes. You know, all these things are really important because there are so many things people just think that everybody should be able to do physically that are not actually necessary. And if your disability makes it harder, then it's good to have documentation about that. So you can just tell people like, look, this isn't going to happen. So we're doing this instead. Yeah, because one know. of the things that I didn't know I had for the longest time was dyspraxia. Like, okay. I didn't even know that was a term. Yeah. Like, what is this thing? So. <laughs> yeah. Very common. Well, we've been at it for an hour. I can't thank you enough. I really enjoyed our conversation today. It's my pleasure. I enjoyed it as well. Is there anything that you would like to cover before we wrap things up? Uh, no, just, you know, you can find our website at thinkingautismguide.com. We are on Facebook. We have a huge community there and on Twitter, which I'm not going to concede to the new name. And also on Blue Sky. <laughs> I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shannon, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time yeah, today. Thank you for inviting me, Sean. Yeah. Let's do this again. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Have a good one. Have a good one. You too. <laughs>